0: to the Bible and the English major. I'm Marin, your host. In each episode of this podcast, we analyze stories from scripture the way an English major would, unpacking the parts to gain a better understanding of the whole. I keep it interesting because I'd love to start a conversation. After all, the best part of any good story is talking about it with friends. this podcast, please follow it wherever you're listening today, and find me on social media. I love to hear from listeners. Links are in the show notes. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at three readings of the Parable of the Good Samaritan. But since that title stinks, implying that most Samaritans are not good, let's just call it the Parable of the Samaritan. It's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 35. If you are the reading kind like me, you can push pause right now and go and read it. Or you can stick around for my version, the Bible story speed run. All right, the parable of the Samaritan in a minute or less on my mark, get set, go. Jesus said, once there was a man walking down from Jericho to... Oops, see, I already got that wrong. Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem to Jericho. You guys are lucky I'm in a singing mood today. All my friends are cringing now because they know I can't sing. (laughs) Okay, get serious. On my mark, get set, Go! Jesus said a man was walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. He was stripped, beaten, and left half dead on the side of the road. A priest approached, and when he saw the man on the road, he just kept walking by. Then a Levite approached, and when he saw the man, he kept walking by too. But then a Samaritan came, and when he saw the man, he got closer to the man. And when he saw how injured he was, he bent down, cared for him by pouring oil and wine on his wounds, bandaged them up, put the man on his own animal, brought him to an inn, stayed overnight with him to care for him, and left money with the innkeeper to continue his care until the Samaritan said he would return and pay back the rest of what was owed. That is the parable of the Samaritan. Thank you very much. Here's what you need to know this is the part where I explain some context. Writers love the number three. It's got rhythm. In describing someone, three adjectives usually do the trick. Mom is pretty, witty, and wise. And though teachers train kids to write five-paragraph essays, it's so they can have three main points in the body of their argument. There are three little pigs, three bears, and three billy goats gruff. In all these stories, the third one builds the brick house, gets things just right, and stumps the troll. For my over-21 crowd, two people walk into a bar, and the third ducks. All the best storytellers use the rule of three, including Jesus. One by one, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan, see the wounded man on the side of the road, and true to the rule, the third one knows what's up. To Jesus' original hearers, there's a big old record scratch moment we need to know about. Amy Jill Levine says, quote, mention a priest and a Levite, and anyone who knows anything about Judaism will know that the third person is an Israelite, end quote. Replacing Israelite with Samaritan is like saying... Angelica, Eliza, and Putin. <laughs> I told you parables were tweaky. Let's define these labels. Priests are descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses. Levites are descendants of Levi, the third son of Jacob. All other ancestral Jews are Israelites, descendants of Jacob's other sons. The point is the priest. The Levite and the Israelite are all Jewish and make a fitting trio. Samaritans are also descendants of Jacob, but tradition says members of the Samaritan tribes married outside of the Israelite people and adopted the gods of those cultures and the God of Israel. From a Jewish perspective then, Klein Snodgrass says Samaritans had a, quote, doubtful descent and inadequate theology, end quote. The Samaritans are decidedly not Jewish, but Levine points out that disdain between the two groups was probably mutual. She stresses that, quote, the parable is not about the type of prejudice that creates people on the margins. It's about hatred between groups who have similar resources, End quote. To her point, the Samaritan in the parable has freedom of travel in Jewish territory, access to the inn, and money to pay for the man's care. At the same time, in Luke nine fifty-two to 56 we learn Jesus has to hold James and John back from burning down the Samaritan village that refuses to host them. Before we dive into the parable, one more detail to know is that as priest and Levite, our bypassers are required to serve in the Jerusalem temple for a week or two per year. They may have been on the road on the way to serve— Some scholars have argued that their upcoming service in the temple would have required their ritual purity, and that contact with blood or a corpse would have defiled them. They say that the duty to stay ritually pure would conflict with the responsibility to care for the wounded man. Levine disagrees, claiming Jewish law would require their care for the man, alive or dead, regardless of purity laws. The scholars do seem to agree, however, that we should not look at the priest and Levite as the elite religious authorities our studies in Mark and John have portrayed. They're not the chief priests you may have heard about, the ones in collusion with the Romans, but regular guys just doing their inherited duty. There you have it. You've got the important context for understanding the parable. Jesus would stop here and let you engage in the story your way especially if it makes you wrestle a bit. My job requires me to be more like Luke, happy to offer a few interpretations for you to consider. Let's get on with the show, the part where we really dive into the story. People often read this narrative as an example story. We should follow the example of the Samaritan who helps the injured man. Is anyone else brave enough to admit this feels boring? Like, duh, God wants us to help other people. Many of us have been lulled to sleep by this reading. On April 3rd, 1968, the night before he was assassinated, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his last speech. He spoke extemporaneously to an audience gathered to support the Memphis sanitation strike and the 1,300 African-American men who demanded fair pay and safety measures against the dangers that killed two men months earlier. Dr. King called on his audience to march and, quote, force everybody to see that there are 1,300 of God's children here suffering, sometimes going hungry. Going through dark and dreary nights, wondering how this thing is going to come out. End quote. He knew marchers risked losing their jobs. He knew they could face police dogs and fire hoses, as the marchers in Birmingham had. And he called on them to respond to that violence with the power of their hymns and prayers. Quote, unquote, Dangerous unselfishness is what he called them to. And then he told this parable. King preached, quote, the first question the priest and Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? End quote. He wondered if they feared the robbers were still lurking or the guy was faking just to trap them. Quote, but then the Good Samaritan came by and reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? End quote. This example story is starting to tweak like an actual parable. The kingdom of God happens when we make ourselves truly vulnerable for another. When dangerous unselfishness makes our decisions. Are we asking what will happen to us if we open ourselves to the discomfort that might involve? Or are we asking what will happen to our neighbors if we don't? Scholars validate this vital example story way of hearing the parable. But their primary reason for reading it more figuratively is that none of Jesus' Jewish audience would have related to the Samaritan. It's hard to create an example of someone no one likes. The story starts in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. The victim is the man the audience would relate to. He's also Jewish, traveling on a familiar road notorious for its bandits and treacherous grade. I was on that road last month, they would say to each other. That could have been me. A clever filmmaker would shoot the movie from the wounded, naked man's ground-level perspective desperately watching the priest and Levite hurrying by. The pacing of their avoidance is quick. Then the Samaritan appears, and everything slows. Verse 33 begins, But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. The enemy approaches. You're clutching your blankie if you're watching this movie in a dark room. But the verse ends, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. What? Now the audience isn't nervous. They're flabbergasted, especially as the story continues in detail. The Samaritan anoints his wounds with oil and wine, puts the man on his own animal, cares for him overnight in an inn, and the following day gives the innkeeper enough money to feed and care for him for two months. Then... He promises to return and pay whatever else he owes. Robert Funk points out, quote, In the traditional example story reading of the parable, The significance of the Samaritan has been completely effaced. The Samaritan is not a mortal enemy, but a good fellow, the model of virtuous deportment, End quote. Is mortal enemy too strong here? The disciples may have been refused lodging in the Samaritan village in chapter 9, but they weren't afraid to ask. There is historical cause for this hostility, though. Stories that support the mortal enemy label include Genesis 34, where Jacob's daughter Dinah is raped in Shechem, an earlier name for Samaria, and Judges 8 through 9, where Shechem descendant Abimelech murders. 70 of his rivals. Some of the Jews who knew these stories saw Samaritans as rapists and murderers. Who wants to accept help from them? In addition to these stories, Levine argues that the ancient story most relevant to our parable is in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. In verses 8 through 15, the Samaritans, confusingly called the people of Israel, took captive 200,000 of their kin. That means the other tribes of Israel from whom the Jews descend. They brought them to Samaria. There, a prophet lets the Samaritans know God is not pleased with this behavior. So check out what their officials do. Quote, They clothed all that were naked among them, provided them with food and drink, and anointed them, and carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them home to their kindred at Jericho. Do you hear the echo? What the Samaritan does in Jesus' parable sounds similar to what his ancestors did. The Israelite captives must have been very surprised by the Samaritan's sudden turnaround. And yet, despite their inadequate theology, the Samaritans heard God and returned the captives to safety. This story's light on the parable causes Levine to ask, Can we finally agree that it's better to acknowledge the humanity and potential to do good in the enemy rather than choose death? Who do you despise enough to reject their help? In what ways could our hatred be impeding their goodness? God's kingdom happens when we love even our enemies and refuse to dehumanize them. Funk takes the enmity between the Samaritans and Jews slightly differently. He asserts that the only reason the injured Jewish man permits himself to be saved by his enemy is that he has no other choice. Funk says all who are truly victims, truly disinherited, have no choice but to give themselves up to mercy. That word, mercy, is significant. It's the word the lawyer uses when he can't force himself to say Samaritan. The one who showed him mercy, he says in verse 37, answering Jesus' question, who was a neighbor? Levine tells us, quote, For the lawyer and for Luke's readers, the Samaritan does what God does. End quote. Here's why. The word mercy appears five other times in Luke's gospel, all concentrated in chapter one, where we hear the hymns of Mary, soon to be the mother of Jesus, and Zechariah, the father of a newborn John the Baptist. They praise the tender mercies of a God who has announced that the promised Savior will come in a tiny, vulnerable package. I'm struck by Luke's connection here. In providing mercy, the Samaritan makes himself vulnerable for the Jew, just as God becomes vulnerable for us. Mercy involves a status shift, a willingness to be shorted on behalf of another, to give what the other cannot gain. Mercy cannot be earned or lost. It can only be received. Perhaps that's the hardest, most beautiful thing about God's kingdom. Accepting that all the love God lavishes on us is completely outside our control. There you have it. Three readings of the Good Samaritan. Though, don't let that number trick you into thinking any of them is just right. If none of these have made you think, I recommend you keep searching for your parable. Next time, we zoom out on the rest of the chapter. How does this story within a story reflect on the greater narrative? How does it relate to Martha? Until then, I always welcome your thoughts. Find me in the social media places listed in the show notes. Thank you to my patrons. Thank you everybody for listening. Have a very happy Thanksgiving. I am truly grateful for your ears. Thanks a bunch. Bye.